this Wednesday, my daughter turned six. And so we, in my family, what we would often do is that on, on your birthday, you would get to pick a movie and pick food. So we got pizza and we said, you get to pick whatever movie you want and I'll pop popcorn and we're going to watch it. And she said she wanted to watch Mr. Rogers. And I thought, perfect. It's short. No, no, just kidding. It's I, what I thought to myself is that every time your kid gets older, you become more aware they're getting older. And I thought, it's not going to be very long that she wants to watch Mr. Rogers. So we put on Mr. Rogers, um, and uh, we watched it. And there was this one part uh, in the episode we were watching where Daniel Tiger, he writes this little song, little puppet Daniel Tiger. And he says, I think it's very, very, very hard to wait, especially when you're waiting for something very nice. I think it's very, very, very hard to wait and I thought about that song, and I, I got to give Daniel Tiger credit for, for two things. One is that despite the fact that he looks like an old dish towel pulled out of a dumpster, he gets on that show every day and does his thing. What's our lesson? Don't let your body issues get in the way of your dreams. Be like Daniel Tiger. Secondly, is, is that's true. Waiting for the things that we want is especially hard. The way I see it, it's... Uh, There's three things you experience when you're waiting. If you're waiting for something you really, really don't want, what you experience is dread. If you are not waiting for anything, there's nothing to look forward to. What you feel is restlessness. And if you're waiting for something really good, what you feel is anxious. Anxious that it'll be taken away, anxious that it won't happen, anxious when other people get something that you wanted or something similar to what you wanted. And everyone in this room is waiting for something, and perhaps it's, it's the day you dream of, or uh, it could be promised from God, but there are things that we are waiting for, and I can guarantee it because life so easily and comfortably slips us into the middle. The middle is where we spend so much of our time. We should remember this, middle is median. It is where most of life is spent. Because even when you get to the end of a current pursuit, it's simply the middle of a next one. I think of all the transitions you've waited on. Things like graduating high school or uh, learning to be an adult. Some of us are still working on it. Uh, Getting married, having kids, raising kids, the kids move out. Whatever it is that you waited for, every time you got it, it started a new thing that you're waiting for. It begins the next thing. I know for me, one of the things that Elena and I have been waiting on is to stop renting and own a home. Every time we get close, we get on the market, it blows up. I think it's me. Everything was fine until I get on the market. Then all of a sudden, the house is triple in price, and you know, we're back to the apartment. We're done. We're not shopping anymore. And we just we keep getting to the spot where we get the down payment, and all of a sudden, this crazy medical debt comes in. We're like, well, I guess that was the miracle of the down payment. God was preventing us from going into like horrific debt. But it's just it's like a cruel joke. And we, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and yet I know whenever we get to the spot where we eventually buy a home, I'll just be waiting for the next thing, waiting when I finally have the money to replace that terrible roof. Everybody hates their house. That's like comes with a house. You're supposed to hate it. Comes with a driveway and hate. That's what a house comes with. And I know it'll be waiting for the next thing. Beginnings and ends, by their very nature, are brief, and the majority of time is spent on the waiting. Our life is going to be primarily filled with medium space, middle space. We spend most of our time waiting. 
And we can't be silent when we're waiting because you know as well as I do that something always speaks in silence. When you're waiting, there are things that are going on. So how do we wait effectively? We've been on a talk for a while and about when God doesn't. We talk so much about God answering prayers and breakthrough happening, but what happens when it's not? What happens when we pray and we're met with silence? What happens when we're waiting way too long, far longer than we expected? And so we've been uh, talking about that topic, studying the book of Habakkuk. Uh, not, a, not a commonly read book, but a very powerful one. Of a prophet that, it, that really connects with people. And uh, he's in this place where he is waiting for God to intervene in the history of the nation. It's falling apart. He finds out that God is going to intervene in a shocking way. He's going to send a wicked and evil empire to punish them. And he expresses that shock. And now the Lord is going to begin to speak some of the promises that are to come. When this happens, when it's over, when exile is complete. And so the Lord begins to reply. Verse 2 in Habakkuk, it says, he says to Habakkuk, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end. It will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, and it will certainly come and will not delay There's this amazing image of the word being preserved, written in tablets, and sent out, sent unto the future, that the appointed time has not come yet. There is an appointed time. There will become a time when all of the deliverance and the destruction of Babylon will, will take place, and they will be restored. But Habakkuk needs to write it down and send it on a trip ahead of him because he won't be there when it's fulfilled. A key point to know is that there is an appointed time. It is not vital for us to know why it is something is taking so long. What's really vital is to know that there is a reason it's taking so long. It's vital to remember that there is a reason. Habakkuk expressed something in the previous chapter I think we can all identify with saying, You, God, are my only hope, my only refuge, the only thing I can trust in, and yet. You make me live as one without hope. God is not inactive or inattentive. He is at work and he has a perfect time, but that doesn't equal fast. This is a, now I love the NIV. Um, I'm hanging on to that. People are moving to the ESV, not me. I'm going to hang on to it and be one of those old guys that just won't give up that Bible translation, but I love it. But it does make a mistake here. I got to indict my favorite translation. It says that it speaks of an appointed, or it speaks of the end. The literal uh, word in Hebrew is it pants to the end. It's panting until the end, which fits the context a lot better. It, it makes a lot more sense. The promise may feel like it is sleeping, but it does not sleep. It runs and it pants, sprints, sweats to meet its targeted moment. And it always arrives on time. And this is what I find remarkable. As though Habakkuk is in the middle at this point, I can step back and I can see the, the little portion he's in. Pre-exile, exile, return. I can see the whole story. I understand where he is in the middle. And we can see that this is actually an incredibly true statement. That at this moment in history, God is absolutely at work unraveling an empire that has yet to rise up. Babylon, who is still rising, their destruction is already being set. It rained so briefly. Things are being put into motion in Habakkuk's time that are going to culminate in the restoration and the promises of coming back from exile. Persia is already stirring. 
They will be the ones that destroy Babylon. And King Cyrus the Great is about seven years old when this is written. And he is the one who brings an end to the Babylonians. He is the one who sends God's people back to the land that they're in. That though Habakkuk feels like, God, where are you? For seven years, King Cyrus the Great has been breathing and preparing, and God is raising him up for the appointed time. It felt like God was doing nothing, but in fact, he was working day and night. His promises, they pant and they run, sprinting to the end. And Habakkuk may see silence and God doing nothing about the injustice, nothing about the unraveling and destruction of Israel and Judah. But what God sees is a frantic movement of motion and effort to get ready for showtime. The time for showtime, the time for restoration, is uh, the timing would be 70 years into exile. It's one jubilee cycle out of the land. And the date will be 539 BC, the destruction of the city of Babylon and the rise of the Persian Empire and the restoration of God's people back to their land. It happens precisely on time, exactly what it was supposed to be. But 70 years in exile means that Habakkuk will not see it. God's timing is perfect timing. There's this interesting warning as God replies here. We're going to jump ahead several verses into verse 18. He says, uh, of what value, this is the Lord speaking, is an idol carved by a craftsman or an image uh, that teaches lies? For the one who makes it trusts in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life, or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. There's an interesting historical note here of the way particularly Babylonians, Assyrians, and Persians created idols. They were actually mechanical, and they had moving parts. They had internal cavities, and so when they would bless them and, and create them, they would forge these things together, and there was this open mouth, and they would sacrifice many animals in front of it. And they would catch blood into the colanders and pour it into the mouth of the idol. And then they would continue to do incense rituals and burning, and when finally the time came, uh, a priest would come up with a hook and pull slowly open the eyelids of the idol, and it was welcoming the deity to come live within that idol. And so as well, it's using this image, it's speaking of the ways and the processes that we go through to create something that gives us some sort of assurance. Israel and we are tempted to look elsewhere when we're waiting because we feel that if God's work seems lifeless, we might as well turn to something that is a creation of our own, something we can control, something we can hang on to. I find it interesting, Israel's first um, idol god, they worshipped many, but the one that they created, an original creation, has an interesting story. It happened almost immediately. There was not much time that they were out in the desert that they immediately constructed this thing. Essentially, they say to, to, to Aaron, the high priest, Moses is gone. He's up. He's hearing from the Lord and doing his Moses stuff, and they, they haven't seen him in a while. And they go to Aaron, and they say, Aaron, we don't know where Moses is. We don't know who's leading us out of here. So please make for us a different God that we can worship and trust in an idol. And God's priesthood, his people, his champions, look at the people and go, okay. And they really did. They made their own God, created him completely. And we know very little about this God. We don't know what this God's name was. We don't know what his mode of ceremony or worship was. We don't know his origin story or domain, all of these things that have been figured out. But we know this, he is a golden calf, a symbol of earthly prosperity and carnal hope. 
the first God that Israel makes is, a, is one that worships wealth and natural resources and hope. And the first God we often look to is the same sort of carnal, can fit in the bank account, hard assets, soft assets, kind of places of peace. Not always riches and wealth, high status and honor, but enough resources that we can be sovereign over our own life. The golden calf made Israel their own hope, that their hope now rested in the herds that were with them and the resources and gold that they had, that there was something to hang on to that they controlled. False gods always make gods out of those that make them. And a wealth god is ancient. We don't always think about it religiously when we worship wealth and look to wealth. God's not coming through, so what can I hang on to? What can I have? What resources? What earthly things am I going to say I'll be okay because of whatever you fill the blank in with right there? We don't think of it religiously, but I would say anything. Anything that replaces the God of the universe has significant spiritual uh, power in our life. Psalms 121 says, I lift my eyes up to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And whether we recognize it or not, our help does come from God. If we forget that God is actively working for us, actively working on our behalf, and that his timing has a reason, the first instinct typically is to seek an idol, to seek a thing that we can hang on to. And our idols are not in temples these days. They're often in hard and liquid assets. There's something amazing here. As I said, this, is a, this, this humble book, we don't often think of Habakkuk. It has one of the most profound statements that impacts Scripture, the New Testament, and church history that you can find in the Old Testament. And it's in verse 4. See, the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Or as Paul translates a few thousand years later, the just shall live by faith. It's a powerful phrase that is hatched in a sense three times in redemptive history. This powerful phrase that tells us what does it take to inherit the kingdom of God? In Habakkuk's day, it was about what is Israel when it has no land? Who are we? How are we still God's people when we think of God and the land as one? In Paul's day, it was a question of how do we inherit this gift of Christ? What does it mean to be a Christian? How do we become his? The just live by faith. And in Martin Luther's day, during the great reform, when he was, he had his own Habakkuk frustration of injustice, the way that the church had indulgences and the sin that was in it. And he had this grand awakening when he reads Romans and he reads this quote from Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. It's transformed our church. The idea remains, belief and faithfulness is the road that leads to our Father. I have a, had a, a, a revelation similar to this, and I remembered it this week as I was studying this. I've, for, for the longest time, I, there's this, this, like, this period of time where what comes over me, all I can describe is depression. And it's like, you can, I can see it, almost like if you're at the beach and you see a storm coming in, you're like, it's coming. And for years, I thought, what is, what, what's going on with me? Why can't God deliver me from this? Did I do something to deserve this? And there came a point in some time in my mid to late 20s that I thought, you know, 
I don't know if I can control this. And if I can't stop the storm, I'm just going to be faithful in the storm. And this was, it came after years of doubt, wondering, does God just not do miracles in this way anymore? This change of heart, if I feel it coming on, I face it and I'm determined to be faithful in the storm. I do, I do the following things. Um, when I feel it coming on, uh, I eat healthy, I stay active, I get outside as much as I can, I reduce screen time, I increase reading time, and I read the Bible very briefly at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and I talk often to Elena about how I'm doing. You see, what I find is that God is with me even if I can't ask, get an answer to the question, why does he make me go through it? I don't know. And eventually, it always seems to leave like clouds driven by a sudden wind. And that's the weirdest thing about it. It doesn't leave slowly. I'll just be driving all of a sudden, just in the same way it felt like clouds come in, just... And I think, I feel like that was the Holy Spirit. I can't think of a different explanation. Why am I going through it? I don't know. But I just know there must be a why. And I have to be faithful in it and do things that I know are right. You see, we cannot just do nothing in the storm. You can't just sit there. Something's always speaking. It's not like until I did, though, that five-step process of the things that I do that I wasn't doing something or thinking something. We're always doing or thinking something when we wait. If life is in the middle, so much of it in the middle, we should be really good at the middle. We should know how to live there. We should know how to, how to go day to day in the middle between when a promise is given and when it's fulfilled, when a hope is dreamed of and when a fulfillment comes. Life won't be worth living more later when the promise arrives. You'll be waiting for something else. If you don't live life now, you're not going to live. And if you don't believe and live a life of faithfulness unto God, you won't endure the storm. We can't wait and do nothing. We have to be faithful in the waiting time. There's this interesting thing, uh, again, on the, on the topic of Ezekiel. There's all these false prophets telling people they, it's after Habakkuk. It's really happened. Babylon really did come. Jerusalem's destroyed. They carried everybody off. They're all going to ghettos. And these false prophets come and they tell everybody, we've heard from the Lord of Israel. He says, don't unload your carts. Don't unload them because he will send us back immediately. And your statement of faith is don't unload the carts. The Lord is coming. And the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and and on it, like the actual Lord is going to speak now, comes to Ezekiel, and Ezekiel's prophecy is this. Unload the carts and start building houses. Give your children away in marriage. Arrange the marriages with people now, because we're going to be here a long time. Essentially, don't be a bunch of weirdos and live this life that the Lord has given you. It echoes Paul later on. Thessalonica is a place that has these horrible earthquakes. People are actually living in tents because the houses are still being rebuilt. And so that community is obsessed with the end times. And they're getting so obsessed, they're drawing away from people and they're being odd. And Paul's uh, Thessalonians is covered with peace information, a little bit of information about the eschaton the end. But the whole point of that book is you need to settle down and live quiet lives of peace so that people exalt your Lord and quit obsessing over these end times. We can't be so obstinate for the promise that we refuse to live life right now. You can't be saying, Lord, I I just can't be happy until the promise is had. Life is meant for living, but it is hard at times. 
We need to get to living, but we need to get to living it faithfully to God. There's this amazing understanding of faithfulness in, in the Hebrew language. The word is, uh, I'm going to do my best. I'm going to say it's imunia. I probably should have looked that up before I got up here, but that's how it's spelled. Um, what I do know is what it is uh, as we study it and look at its meaning. It's a way of acting that flows from inner stability is what it means and indicates one's inner attitude that has a conduct on the life it produces. Faith and faithfulness are linked. Not just in our own language, it's the same word, but it is the same concept. That from a deep belief, it affects our behaviors. It affects what we do. Habakkuk, like us, isn't meant to wait on God with folded hands and bated breath, but to believe deeply in God's goodness and to live faithfully because of what he believes so deeply. To live a godly and stable life, doing what is right, caring for others in God's name, and concerning ourselves with the daily concerns of God. We spend so much time waiting for these promises. I think there's times that we say in our hearts, God has forsaken me. It's taking too long. I see other people, the Lord gives it to them, but not to me. I feel that God has forsaken me. And all of the unfaithfulness that comes from that, the fears, the way that we have a hard time speaking with the Lord, having a hard time being with other people, it comes from a broken belief that this whole faith, the wisdom of God is Jesus Christ on a cross, lifted up. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the point of atonement is that everything Christ took on is so that you would not. He was forsaken so that not for a moment would you be forsaken. Not for a moment would you be forsaken that the hard times and the waiting times and the long times is not God forsaking us. It is the time that we spend most of our lives in waiting for the proper and right moment, waiting for when the time was right. God was up to much deeper attitude, heart adjustment issues with Judah to fix it in Habakkuk's time. They needed time to be humbled. They needed time to go live somewhere else and find out that our God is so great, he has the power to leave Israel. He's the Lord of all the earth. The theological rumblings and changes that happened at that point is what makes it possible for them to understand Christ when he comes and teaches. The Lord was doing something deeper and there was a right time. That's true for us too. God has not forsaken you. He did not forsake them. But there's a waiting time. We'll spend so much of our lives in that place. If it seems quiet now, God's promises are busy at coming true. God's promises sprint to the finish line. And they arrive in the perfect hour, no matter how soon or how far away it is. Let me pray for us. God, I pray that you would be working within us. The things that we wait on and the fears that we have, wondering, is the Lord coming? Lord, would you give us a deep, adjusted faith to know that we aren't forsaken, that in our darkest hours, the Lord is with us that even for this poor nation that's about to go into exile, one of the stories we remember most about them in exile is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the furnace. Cast in, seemed utterly forsaken by God, but no one could deny that with those three men, there was a fourth figure and you were in the fire with them. 
Lord, I pray that we would not let the fires of life make us think we are forsaken, that we wouldn't lose our hope in you, and that we would have a deep conviction that though we can't always find out why, we know that there is one, and that our God is for us and not against us. He is busy right now preparing things ahead for us, for a life worth living. So God, let us live in this Sunday that we're waiting in. Let us live in this Monday and Tuesday, the days that we wait. God, give us lives that are, that are full and fruitful, that we wouldn't wait to put roots down of joy and to enjoy the life that you've given us. And may we be so transfixed on you that if we look at our life and we realize that out of a doubt for you, we've put our trust in more natural things, would you give us the anointment of that, that idol crusher? that we could put these things out and say above all things that I could gather, above all planning, above all preparedness, there is a hope that is more important than all of those. And it is my Lord in heaven. Lord, I pray that you would be the hope of our lives. Would you give us guidance? You, the God who breathes and speaks and guides. Help us be very good at waiting. Help us be very good in the middle. And God, I pray that we could fill in the middle and the waiting faithfully as we plant seeds that bring our lives to life with you. Lord, I pray for better homes, better, better lives. As we don't wait for things to be good, but we choose to be faithful to you now. Be with us, Lord, in this time of waiting. In your name we pray, amen.